The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Produced a crop hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears, let him hear. His disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries, or if you have an ESV, the secrets of the kingdom of God. But to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. In other words, he's going to tell them the meaning of it. He says, The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word instantly and with joy, and they have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation they fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked and with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed of the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Now, no one after lighting a lamp, this is a second parable, and it's connected to the first. I'll explain in a minute. Now, no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light or see by the light. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. So take care how you listen, for whoever has to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has shall be taken away from him. Let's pray. Our Father, our greatest need today is to have ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to believe. We know that you're the only one who is able to produce that in us. And so we come before you, Father, and ask that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears, that you would uh, cause our heart to believe and trust in you put our confidence in you, Father. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and his glory. We thank you for his teaching. We thank you, Father, for the truth that he is and that he's brought to us. And so we pray that it would penetrate our hearts. It would have impact on our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This, uh, whether you're aware of it or not, uh, in the Gospels, there's about 46 different parables that Jesus gives. Well, what is a parable? A parable, the word parable just comes from the Greek word uh, that sounds like it. It's parabolase, and it means, it's made up of two words. Para means alongside of, like we get our word parallel from that. And bale is just the word from which we get our word ball. It means to throw, to throw beside, to lay down beside, to put beside so that it will explain and make clear something else. You know how it is when you're trying to explain something to someone that's difficult to understand, and you can resort to stories illustrations of some kind to make it plain, and that's what parables are. And Jesus used parables often, and this is the, the best known of all the parables is the parable of the sower or the soils. And he says this is a picture and an explanation of why there are so many different responses to the gospel. 
Now, Jesus came into the world preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And there were some who believed and received and were changed by it. There were others who apparently believed but instantly forgot it and went on their way. And there were others who thought they believed, but as the the worries of life pressed in upon them, they simply abandoned the truth that they heard from the Lord Jesus. And then there are those who receive the, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it penetrates their hearts and it produces fruit. And you begin to see this fruit. In fact, it's called the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, meekness, faith, long-suffering, and so forth. And so that is, that is the result of the seed penetrating the heart and going down into the heart and embraced by faith. And it begins to produce divine effects. And so the reason Jesus gives these parables is twofold. One, it's so that those who do believe in Christ will understand. And those who do not want to hear what Christ has to say can stay confused. Now that's odd, isn't it? He says he's telling these parables so that those who don't want to receive it will not understand. But those who do will come to understand in a deeper and simpler way. And so this is why the parables. Now, the parables are important to us. And as you read the gospel, you'll run on to the parables. The primary place to look for the parables of Jesus is Matthew 13. There are more parables there than any place else. I think there are seven. And in Matthew 13, Jesus, uh, in his teaching, uses parables to explain truth. Um, Now, why did he speak in parables? Well, he says, there are those who have ears and those who don't. Now, he's not talking about, all of you here look like you have ears, as I look across this audience. We all have ears, but some of us have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. We have ears to hear what the gospel is. We receive it by faith. We embrace it by faith, and it has divine effects in our lives. And then there are those who do not have ears to hear. And so Jesus said, if you have ears to hear, then listen. Now, this is very much like, in fact, it really originated from, in Isaiah 6. If you remember, Isaiah found himself in the presence of God in Isaiah 6, in the temple. He said he was in the temple on the Lord's day, and all of a sudden, he sees the Lord and all of his glory filling the temple. And he is, and every time a man finds himself in the presence of God in Scripture, he falls on his face because he feels so unworthy and so unholy to be in the presence of this glorious God. And that's what Isaiah did. And Isaiah began to utter these words, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. In other words, I don't deserve to be here. And God's, God cleanses his mouth. He has an angel do that, to cleanse his mouth. And then God says that who is going to go for us and who shall we send? And Isaiah responds. Now, this was evidently a conversation between the members of the Trinity. And he hears what is being said. And so Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Because his lips have been cleansed and he's ready to go. And so then God gives him his mission. And here's his mission. I want you to go and preach the truth. In fact, I want to have you turn there and look at this. This is Isaiah chapter 6, if you'll turn back there. Isaiah chapter 6. Um, in Isaiah 6, we have Isaiah having this in personal encounter with the living God in a very physical and real and powerful way. And so this is what he says to him. Look down at verse 9. God says to him, 
Go and tell this people, that is my people Israel, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. In other words, continue in the way that you're going. You are, you are turning a deaf ear to God, he says to them. Render their hearts, the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. In other words, God is going to bring judgment on the nation of Israel, and he sends Isaiah to proclaim the truth to them so that they will reject it, and it will be obvious that they are truly rejectors of God and rejectors of his truth. And then judgment's going to fall on the nation. And then it said, Isaiah says, then I said, Lord, how long? Now, that would be the question I'd ask, too. He says, I want you to go and preach, and people are not going to hear you, and everything you say is going to drive them further into unbelief. I would, I would want to know, how long do I have to do this? That wouldn't be a very good assignment, would it? To go and preach so that the people who hear will not hear, and they go deeper into their unbelief and rejection of the truth of God. And so he says, how long? And here is what God responds. He said, until cities... Be, are devastated and without inhabitants. Houses are without people, and the land that is Israel is utterly desolate. And the Lord has removed them far away, that is, into Babylonian captivity. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of Israel. But then he goes on, the very last verse of chapter 6, he gives a promise. He's going to restore them. He says, There will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, and the holy seed is in its stump. Now, what he means by that is this. Israel is the womb of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes into the world through a young Jewish woman. And so Israel exists at this time so that Christ could come into the world. And so he says, even though he's going to bring this judgment on them, ultimately he's going to use them to glorify the whole world. The whole world is going to be blessed through the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, I think, obviously, we, we normally don't think about the great, great blessings that have come into the world because of the coming of Christ, but there are so many. The impact of Christ coming into the world are so great and glorious, and the coming of Christ into your life by faith are life-changing. And so this is what Jesus says when he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, He comes into the world, and this is what John says about him. He says he came to his own things, that is the world, which he created. Because remember in John 1, it says, everything that has come into existence has come into existence through him, the eternal son, and nothing has come into existence that has not come into existence through him. So he's the creator of all things. He spoke everything into existence. But then it goes on to say, John goes on to say, he came to his own things, his creation, but his own people did not receive him. That is, his chosen people, Israel. But then he says, but as many as did receive him. Now we know there were several, there were, there were thousands of people within Israel that did believe Christ was the Messiah. They did turn to him in faith. And that turned into thousands upon thousands. And in fact, the gospel finally came to you. Stop and think where you were when the gospel came to you. It was a long ways from Bethlehem, wasn't it? 
It was a long, long ways from where Jesus came into this world, and the, and the gospel message has gone out through the whole world. Today, there are two billion people who claim to be followers of Christ. They've heard the message of who Christ is and what Christ has done. But what's going on here is Jesus is teaching in parables so that those who did believe him, who did trust him, would come to understand these truths in a clear way, and those who didn't trust him would be more in the dark than they were before. To sit under the teaching of the word over a long period of time without believing, rejecting what the Bible says, what Christ has said, and what Christ has, re- what Christ has revealed about God, hardens your heart against him. And this is what we don't want to happen in our lives. We want our heart to be impacted by the truth. We want the seed of the gospel to penetrate deeply into our hearts so that it bears fruit. And so Jesus gives them this parable explaining why there's such a diverse response to the preaching of Jesus when he preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. And it's because of the hearts of the people. The soils, there are four kinds of soils here, and those four soils are different kinds of hearts. And there's four different kinds of response. Now, in what we have in the first 15 verses, we have the parable of the sower, and then in verses 11 through 17, we have, uh, it should be 16 and, and uh, 16 down through 18, we have the parable of the lamp. And we'll look at that in a second. Now, the context is given to us back in, let me get back to Luke chapter 8, if you'll turn back there in just a moment. Um, In in Luke chapter 8, we're told that he is preaching to these people about the kingdom of God. What, What was Jesus' favorite name for himself? Do you know? Does anybody know what he called himself, the, the most common way he referred to himself? Son of man. I heard somebody say that. That's correct. He called himself the son of man. That was the most common way he referred to himself. But what does that mean? Why that name? Daniel. We were in Isaiah. Now we're going to Daniel. Daniel's right after Ezekiel. I know you all read Ezekiel a lot. Well, Daniel chapter 7, we have this story of a vision that God gives to Daniel. And in his vision... He sees things that refer to the future, the unfolding of the future. He talks about the kingdoms, that those kingdoms in the world are going to control the great, that they were considered world kingdoms that controlled all of a known civilization. But then finally something happens. In fact, I'm just going to have you turn to uh, look at verse 13. This is Daniel 7, verse 13. Listen to these words. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions. I was, God was giving me a vision. He let me see something to, ex, to explain to me what the future held. And he says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. This is where the name originates. One like the son of man was coming. And he came in to the ancient of days. That's a picture of the father. We are told that in the previous context. He comes before the father. And he was presented before him. And to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, men of every language might serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom one which will not be destroyed. So when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, he is claiming to be this king who's going to be be given the kingdom that's going to cover the entire earth. People from every nation are going to be a part of this kingdom. Now, there's a future fulfillment of this that we still are waiting for when Christ comes back. There's going to be a, Christ is going to reign over all people in all places. And they're going to voluntarily submit to him because of their love for him. At the present time, there are about 2 billion people who bow the knee to Jesus Christ right now and call him Lord and consider him the one who rules over the kingdom of God in its present form in the world. And so when Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, the good news was the king was present. Now, I think all of us uh, would think it would be a good idea if we could have a person who ruled over the world who was like Jesus Christ, if you understand who he is. A perfect ruler, a perfect king, a king of righteousness, the high king of heaven. That's what we look forward to. But until he comes personally back to this earth, we live our lives under his rule because we have believed the gospel of the kingdom, that the king has come and died for our sins and provided a way that we could be reconciled to God. And we have believed upon him. We heard the gospel. It penetrated our hearts. We believed, and it began to produce divine effects in us. And so we begin to live our lives in submission and obedience to Jesus Christ. Not in order to get into the kingdom, but because we were put into the kingdom by God by simply believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus uh, came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, he was preaching this good news that the king was present. And so in this context, back in, in Luke 8, what we have is this this event where Jesus begins to go from city to city, from village to village, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and calling people to believe upon him. I I want you to think for a second, what would it have been like to hear the gospel at this point in time in history? When Jesus had come into the world, but he was rejected by the leaders of Israel and most of the spiritual leaders in Israel, and yet he was claiming to be the eternal Son of God who had come into the world to rescue a people for himself, to restore us in relationship with God, to reconcile us to God. Do you know what reconciliation means? Have you experienced that in your life? Have you experienced reconciliation with people? You know, what happens is we become alienated from each other because of offenses. We offend one another. We say things to each other We do things to each other that causes an offense to take place. And pretty soon we're alienated and people could say things like, I'll never talk to that guy again. I don't ever want to see them again. That's alienation. That's what we did to God by our sin. You see, God says this this is the command he's given to all mankind. Jesus said these are the two commandments upon which all the commandments of God hang And that is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your whole being. You shall love God with everything that you are. And secondly, you shall love your neighbors yourself. 
Those are the two great commandments of God. And we were alienated from God because we, as a race, we totally violated those commandments. And we found ourselves far from God. Alienated from him. Not caring anything about him. Or about what he commanded us to do. And so what did God do? Did he just write us off? No, he sent his son into the world to reconcile us to God. Jesus came into the world to reconcile an alienated people to God. To bring us back into a right relationship with him. And so when we heard the gospel, the good news, it was the good news that Christ had done everything necessary for us to be reconciled to be brought back into a right relationship with God and fulfill the thing, the purpose for which we were created, which is to be loved by God and have a relationship with God. You see, you could build a case that God loves everybody. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. But nobody experiences the love of God until they have responded in faith to what God has done for them in Christ Jesus. We stay alienated. What God did when sending his son, his son, his eternal son, who is eternal God, took on a human nature like ours, became a citizen of the world, and reconciled the world to God in the sense that God is no longer waging war against the world. And you should say, oh, praise the Lord. What a great relief. Sometimes we worry about, why doesn't God judge that person? Why doesn't he bring judgment on that person or on that nation or on that people? Be careful. Because if he started meeting out judgment based on what we deserve, we would all be in trouble, wouldn't we? But instead, what he does, he sends a savior into the world, his own eternal son, to reconcile the world to himself so that the gospel could go out to the whole world. There's not, a, there's not an inch on this planet where the gospel cannot be proclaimed to the people that are there. You can go anywhere in the world. You want to go somewhere and preach the gospel? Go wherever you want to go. Go where you are and preach the gospel. Because you, it's, you're free to proclaim the gospel to people, the good news that God has sent his son into the world. And therefore, he is not at war with us. We are at war with him. And you can turn from that and find a relationship with God that you actually experience the love of God. You know, to, saying that God loves, God loves, God loves, God loves is wonderful. It's a wonderful truth. But let me tell you, you do not enjoy the love of God. You don't experience the love of God. You, don't, you, don't, you cannot respond to the love of God until you have entered into a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, Jude says in his little book, small little letter, Jude was the brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus, and he writes, he writes a, a, a short letter, and he says in there to the church, to you and I, he's, he's obviously writing to a, a group of people, and he says it in this way. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And he tells us three things we have to be doing to keep ourselves in the love of God. In other words, we've been loved by God, Right? But this is how we're to live, to enjoy being loved by God, to experiencing it in our daily life. And he says you do three things as a group. 
First of all, you continue to build one another up in the most holy faith, which means that we actually are interested in one another growing in the faith, growing in our understanding of who Christ is and who we are in Christ. And so together we talk to each other. We build one another up in the most holy faith. And secondly, he says, praying together in the Holy Spirit. We are a praying people, and so when we get together, we should be praying. It's the most normal thing in the world for Christians to do is to pray. This is probably a good moment to stop and pray, but I'm going to keep going because I I know I don't want to take too much time. But uh, we are a praying people, and so if we're going to keep ourselves in the love of God, we have to be a praying people. So we pray together. And then finally he says, and live together in anticipation of the second coming of Christ to deliver us on the last day. We live in anticipation of Jesus coming. We live in joy. We don't live in anticipation like some people do, as I cannot wait until God destroys that country, that nation, that world ruler. And what I say is, thank you, Father, for being so gracious. I deserve your destruction, and instead you gave me grace. You gave me forgiveness and restoration. And so Jesus comes preaching the gospel of the kingdom in order to bring us back into a right relationship with God. He has reconciled us positionally by dying on the cross in our place. But we come to experience this through faith in Jesus Christ. And he actually does a work within our hearts. Most of you could, could quote uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works, not something you do and you have to do to earn this salvation. Not of works, as anyone should boast, because we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Salvation is God creating something in you, not you creating something for God so that he can forgive you and bring you into his family. Christ has done that. What he does is give you faith, confidence to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of us who are Christians, we would say to anybody, if they said, how did you become a Christian? We would probably give them some details. This happened, this happened, this person began to talk to me this way and so forth. But we all know it was because the God of the universe reached down into our lives and opened our eyes and prepared our hearts, and the seed of the gospel was sown in our hearts, and we, it was, we embraced it, and we began to experience eternal life. And the important thing about eternal life is this. It's not how long it is. The important thing about eternal life is it is the ability that's given to us to know God. That's what Jesus said to his Father in John seventeen three. This is eternal life, that they might know you, And the word know you there, that expression means to know him personally, not know about him, but to know him like the closest friend. This is eternal life that you, they might know God, you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's the purpose of him giving you eternal life is so that you could know him and know one another and to live out the Christian life together, keeping ourselves in the love of God experiencing what it means to be loved by God in all of life. Well, back in in, uh, Luke chapter 8, 
what we're told here is, the disciples' question is, uh, what does this, this parable mean? Before explaining what it meant, he explains to them why he's speaking in parables. It's so that you who want to believe him can understand. And you that don't want to believe him, you who have your heart set against him, you will be more confused. What you have will be taken away, in other words. What does a parable mean? And he explains to the disciples what it means. He says, this is meant for you to understand, and this is what it means. He says, the word of God is the seed. It's the word of God. That is, it's the gospel of the kingdom. It's the good news about Jesus Christ. And he says, the sower is Jesus. And by application, it's all of you Christians, because you are all ambassadors of Christ. Why has God put you where he's put you? Why has he given you people in your life that he's given you? It's to sow the seed of the gospel. It's to be an ambassador. It's to call people to be reconciled to God. That's why you are where you are. Some people say, man, why am I stuck in this lousy job? Because that's where God wants you right now to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And maybe that person that you cannot stand, that you wish you could get a thousand miles away from him, maybe that's the person that it is your assignment to sow the seed of the gospel into his heart. And if God is preparing his heart, you'd be amazed. I've been amazed over the years at people who've turned to Christ that I never thought would. I was just sharing the gospel because that's my duty not as a pastor, but as, a, as an ambassador of Christ. And God goes and saves them. Then all of a sudden, this person that you didn't like becomes one of your family members in the body of Christ. And, they, and uh, that's how, but that's how God is. And so he says that this, this, the sower is Jesus, but it's also you, believer, because you have the gospel. And the soils are four kinds of hearts, four different Results. The first one was a soil that he describes as by the path, that is, it had been walked upon, it had been pressed down, and the seed could not penetrate. When the seed was sown there, it just laid on the surface, and the birds came and ate it and took it away. And he says, that's a picture of Satan stealing from people the exposure to the gospel. So you can share the gospel with someone. If, if, if there's no response, no reception there, Satan comes and takes that away so quickly, they are no longer bothered by it. And he says the second kind of soil was a soil that was on a rock. My, my, uh, one of my brother-in-laws is in heaven now, but he, uh, he used to work for Scott Seed, and, and he would do this demonstration of uh, one of their products. I forget which one it was, but they could, they could put this product on a cement slab put seed in it, water it, and grass would come up. I mean, very quickly, in just a a day or so. But it couldn't last because there was nothing for the, the, the seed, the roots of the seed couldn't penetrate the cement. And it would die. There's no moisture. It couldn't hold any moisture. And he says, that's the second kind of soil. It's people who give an immediate response. That's why I don't, the Bible never talks about this, a sinner's prayer that I lead you through. And the reason I don't think it's very helpful is because 
until God prepares the soil, you can get people to jump through hoops, do backflips, do anything you want them to do, maybe just to get rid of you and to get you off their, off their case. But it's not going to do anything. It's not until God places a desire in their heart to know this Christ who's being described in the gospel. And when that happens, the seed can penetrate the soil. The third kind of soil, he says, is the thorny soil. There's thorns and thistles growing up. You know, come down to my house, I'll show you some. Thorns and thistles, weeds of every kind. And so the seed is thrown there, and it might attempt to to grow up, but then it's choked out by these thorns and thistles. And he says, that's the people who hear the gospel and are excited about it. But when they go on their way, they have so many things going on in their life, so many idols of the heart, so many things they're really interested in. You know, you go and look at their computer and you see the stuff they look at, the idols of their heart, the stuff that they have to feed on all the time. And those things choke out the truth of the gospel to them. And he said, the fourth kind of soil is the good heart. The soil has been prepared. Now, you remember what Paul said? He said, uh, I, uh, Apollo, I sow Apollos waters, but God gives the increase. I think I had that backwards. I think it was Apollos sows, I water, but it's God who gives the increase. In other words, God causes the growth. If God is not involved in our evangelism, it doesn't matter what kind of method we use, nothing's going to happen. Because God has to prepare the heart. And when God prepares the heart, then there can be a reception of the gospel that will bear fruit. I've quoted before, misquoted, actually, I discovered because I, I, uh, I used to quote Lewis, uh, Lewis Schaefer, who said in his little book, Evangelism, he says, it's more important to talk to God about men than it is to talk to men about God. Well, he was actually uh, quoting uh, a guy named Ian Bounds, and now I don't think I have it in my notes. But what Bounds actually said was, what Bounds actually said was, it's good to talk to God for men. I mean, it's it's good to talk to men for God. That's being a witness. That's good. But he says it's more important to talk for men to God. Now, you want to talk to men for God and, bear, and bring the gospel to them, but what has to happen for them to re- be responsive to the gospel is God has to work in their heart. Now, the proof of this is this. If you stop and think about your own life and about how you came to, to believe the gospel, if you go back and think about the, the events and what took place, you can see the hand of God that God brought you into certain circumstances. He brought certain people into your life. He brought certain experiences into your life so that when the gospel finally came, it was exactly what you knew you needed to hear and you embraced it by faith. I love it when somebody gets saved by surprise and they don't know what happened to them. And then they, and then they ask you, I don't know what's going on. What's going on with me? This is, this is what I'm feeling and experiencing. What, what's happening to me? Well, that's called the new birth The new birth is when God prepares the heart and someone sows the seed and the Holy Spirit causes life to form and you're born again. I'm talking about the spiritual life to be born in you. 
and you're born again, and all of a sudden you're alive to God, and things change. But it's God who must initiate this. So what can you do about it? You can ask him to do it. If I, I've tried to get you to write down names, I don't know if anybody has, I've tried to get you to write down the names of between five and ten people that are in your life right now and to start praying for them. You know why? Because those are the most likely people that God is going to give you opportunity to share the gospel with. About 90% of people who come to faith in Christ tell us that they, the primary influence of them coming to faith in Christ was a family member or a close friend who shared the gospel with them. So what if you only have two friends? That's your mission field. And I'm telling you, if you start taking it seriously, you'll have more friends. (laughs) If God knows he can trust you with the gospel, he'll multiply friends. Some of you have tons of friends, and you have the opportunity to share the gospel with those, that, all those people because God's positioned you in a place. Now, don't be... God, in chapter 9, or chapter, yeah, chapter 9 and chapter 10 of Luke, we're going to see that when Jesus sent his disciples out to take the gospel throughout Israel, he gave them some very clear instructions. One of them was, don't twist arms. If somebody doesn't want to hear what you have to say, then leave them alone and move on. I've told you this before, I know, but uh, I tell everything I say, I say it several times. But I uh, was in a DMV office one day in a line, long line. I was about three people. I finally got up to, I was about three or four people back. And the guy that was talking to the, you know those people that work at DMV? Do we have any employees of DMV here? Um, (laughs) But he's up there talking to this lady, and he's trying to share the gospel with her. He's got a track out, and he's trying to take her through the track to lead her to, the, to Christ. And everybody in the line is totally irate because it has taken so long to get where we were, and now this guy is not going to stop. And she says to him, sir, I'm sorry, I am busy. Can you see this line? All these people need to be waited on. I don't have time for this right now. What Jesus would have said to him was, shut your mouth, do your business, and move on. Now, there are times when you're going to be rebuffed and you know you need to continue to press in. But what Jesus said is, if somebody says they don't want to hear it, then you move on. Because he's going to bring people into your life who are going to delight in hearing the gospel because God has prepared their hearts. And so don't worry that you won't have an opportunity to share the gospel. God knows how to bring you in contact with people that he's prepared their hearts. And sometimes they'll even tell you that. I can't, people sometimes run into someone and they have a, they, as they're speaking, they understand that what this person is saying to them is exactly what they need to hear at this moment. And that's how God works. And so Jesus is explaining to them that what has to happen is the heart has to be changed. And the only one who can change the heart is the living God. He changed your heart. He changed my heart. And he will change the hearts of people. So pray that he would prepare them. Now, sometimes you get to share the gospel and you don't even know. You haven't been praying for him. You didn't know they even existed. And all of a sudden, you're thrown into a situation where the door has just opened up. 
and a person wants to know. I remember a question I had one time. A woman said, how, how do you become a Christian? I'm kind of interested. How do you become a Christian? Isn't that a great question? You could put that on a little card and say, you know, I'm, would you ask me this question? <laughs> how do you become a Christian? God prepares hearts to receive the gospel. And when he puts you in the place that puts those people before you, you have the opportunity to share your faith. I've read this to you before, but in uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and this just stunned me, in Philemon 6, it, uh, Paul is telling Philemon, I am so glad to hear that you are growing in your sharing of the faith because it produces in you a deeper understanding of what God has done for you through his work in Christ. It's an amazing thing. Uh, What I notice is everybody becomes an evangelist when someone they love very dearly goes off the rails and needs help desperately, and they want to know, how do I share the gospel? Well, open your mouth, or uh, there's, a, there's a book you can get and read. It's called Just, Just Go Across the Room. That's the title of the book. Just Walk Across the Room, I think that's what it is. Just Walk Across the Room. What he's talking about is one of the ways to share the gospel is actually greet people, meet people, be interested in people, get into conversations with people. And it will naturally, naturally, God will open the door for you to share the gospel you to share your faith. Now, one of the things that has to happen for you to be effective in, in sharing your faith is you've got to be experiencing fellowship with God. You've got to be experiencing the joy of loving Christ and believing Christ, because that's the motivation. That's the thing that motivates us to share Christ with people. If you love a person, you want what's best for them. You know how it is. There's a lot of us here. We have children and grandchildren, and uh, we want them to know Christ, don't we? That's a huge motivation. We want them to come to really know Christ and to experience the joy of this relationship with God. To live their lives experiencing the joy of the Lord and the power of the Spirit at work in their lives. That's a great motivation. Uh, I have an uncle who prays for our family. My grandmother used to do it, and now he's taken it over. He's like 88 years old, and he can name everybody in our family. When he talks to me, he asks me about every child I have, every grandchild I have, every son-in-law and daughter-in-law I have, and on and on and on. He knows everybody because he prays for them every day. And I don't, he told me how many there were, something like 75 or something like that. How do you remember that many names? I call my wife Honey because sometimes... The name just doesn't come to me. I'm only kidding. I'm not that far down the road. (laughs) But do you pray? Are you praying? Guess what? You have people in your sphere of influence who need Christ. They desperately need Christ. Now, I know what happens. Sometimes what happens to Christians, we have people in our life, and we think, wow, they're better adjusted than I am. I'm a follower of Christ, but I'm really messed up. My life's really goofy. I'm upside down, and these people seem like they've got it together better than me. How are they ever going to listen to me when I tell them about Christ? Only by the sovereignty of God. 
because God works in glorious ways. And he loves to use people that appear to be unusable. <laughs> you know, you would think if you, you're talking to a real intellectual that you ought to get one of your intellectual friends to talk to them. I was talking to a professor or a, yeah, a professor at Berkeley, UC Berkeley one time, and we got in this discussion, and I was asking him about the second law of thermodynamics. And the reason I was is I'd heard these apologists always talking about uh, we, know, we know certain things because of the second law of thermodynamics, which just means everything's running down. Energy is de- being depleted. And so I'm asking about this, and I'm looking for an opportunity to share the faith with him. And so, and, but he's, but he's, a do- he's a Ph.D. in science. And so I'm thinking, why would he want to talk to a dummy like me? But guess what? You can share the simple gospel of Jesus Christ with anybody that God opens the door to. And if he's prepared their heart, they're going to take hold of the gospel and believe it, and it's going to sink deep in their hearts, and it's going to change their lives. How do you know when a person has received the gospel? Their life will be changed. Being born again has evidences to it. There are telltale signs of the new birth. John says, here's here's what they are. You begin to believe the truth about Jesus. That is what God has said about him. God has given a testimony about his son. And when we believe that testimony, that's a sign that we've been born again. The second evidence is we'll love God's people. And the third is we'll obey his commandments. Those are the clear evidences of the new birth. There's a guy, uh, Steve Brown, who's a radio, he's a, he was a pastor for many years. He has a radio, Christian radio program. He pastored for something like 30 years before he got saved. He was pastoring this church and preaching these messages that he got through a service that they mailed him the message. The reason my sermons aren't so great is I don't use the service. Uh, but but, but he, would, he would just preach these sermons. And then after, after so many years, I said 30 years, I don't know if it was 30, 20 or 30, but something like that, he came to realize he didn't know Christ. And he heard the gospel and he believed and his life was transformed. So God can use you. And sometimes he'll use you in people's lives that you would never expect. But what you can do is that you can talk to the Lord about men. You can speak to to God for men on their behalf. You can pray that God would work in their heart and open their eyes to their need of Christ. Sometimes the way they see their need is they see you, and they see how you have peace and hope when you shouldn't. And so Peter says, be ready to give an explanation of the hope that lies within you. Now, he's talking to people who are under severe persecution, going through really hard times. Why would they have hope? Because they believe the gospel. The second parable that's here is found a little down in the passage a little ways in verse 16. He says, now no one after lighting a lamp. Now, you know what a lamp was at this time was a little You've seen the pictures of these lamps, and they're just, they have olive oil in them, and they'll put a little wick, and they light it. And he says, so when the lamp is lit, he says, no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it over with a container. 
You remember in, you remember in Sunday school when you sing, hiding under a bushel? No. I'm going to let it shine. And so Jesus, that's where it comes from, this passage. Jesus says, no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light or may see by means of the light. For nothing hidden, there is nothing hidden that will not become evident. Wow. Is that scary or what? There is nothing hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. So take care how you listened. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. Now what he's getting at there is, be careful how you listen to the gospel. Be careful how you listen to the word of God. Now, us as believers, I've heard this, these soils applied to believers saying, you know, if you, have a, if you have a heart that's dominated by thorns and thistles, you're not going to grow in the Christian life. Well, that's okay. That's an application, but that's not what the text is talking about. What the text is talking about, the heart of the unbeliever, if the heart is prepared and ready, it will bear the fruit of the gospel. It'll embrace the gospel. But the same is true for us who are Christians. How do we respond to what we have received from God. How do we listen? Um, Isaiah 53 starts out, who has believed our message? Who has believed our report? Who has believed what has been published vocally? It's been, it's been proclaimed. Who has believed it? And he goes on to give the gospel in Isaiah 53, 750 years before Christ came. And so I need to be careful how I listen. I need, in other words, I need to take in truth and internalize it and apply it to my life so that it becomes a part of me because that produces light. Now, what light is in Scripture? Light is eternal life manifested, the life of God in manifestation. Remember in John 1, it says, in him was life and the life, that is this eternal life, the life of God in, in his son, Jesus Christ. He says, and the life was the light of men. The way that men, when Jesus was walking around in, in, in Israel, what people were seeing was the manifestation of God's life. They saw what Jesus did, what he said, how he acted, the way he treated people. It was all manifestations of the very life of God. And guess what? You have been given this life when you believed on Christ. You were given eternal life. And so as this life manifests itself in your conversations, in your actions, in your attitude, that's the life of God being manifest. That's light. And this is why John says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and his blood is cleansing us from sin. In other words, we can have intimate, close fellowship with God as we walk in the light, as we manifest the life of God. Now, John goes on, I should say this, John goes on to say, look, you're going to have times when you don't walk in the light, when you sin. And this is the way you get back into the light. You don't deny that you sin, you confess your sin, because Christ paid for your sin. But you definitely want to walk in the light as he is in the light so that you can have fellowship with him and with his people. And so 
the, what we take in, what we receive, what we embrace by faith is what can be shown through us to this world. And I have to have credibility in order to share the gospel with anybody. The, the life of God has to be manifested in such a way that it can be seen. Listen to this. This is 1 John chapter 5. Just two verses. Let me read this to you. For the, the testimony of God is this. The testimony of God. God declares this to be true. The testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. In other words, you believe the same thing about Jesus that the Father believes. His testimony about his Son. Now, we've, heard, we've seen in Scripture that those who were there at his baptism and those who were there on the Mount of Transfiguration heard the voice of God from heaven. And God said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, listen to him. Now, John goes on and he says, the one who believes in the Son of God has a testimony himself. In other words, you've received the testimony of God about him. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. God says, you need Christ. You cannot live uh, without Christ. You cannot be in my presence without Christ. You cannot be saved without Christ. That's God's testimony. And when we say, no, I don't want that, then you're calling God a liar. You're saying that you can, you can live your life. You can thrive. You can fulfill a good life without Christ. And God says, no, you can't. And so when we believe God's testimony, and he goes on to say, and this is the testimony, that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. So this parable about the lampstand explains the practical implications of you having the light. What should you do with it? Hide it under a bushel? You're supposed to respond. Hide it under a bushel? No. <laughs> That's right. Let Christ be seen in your life. I was running around this morning because I got here and the computer I brought, I couldn't get it working with the projector. And so I had to go home and exchange it. And I found myself, um, I, was, I was in a dither. It was like, oh man, what's going to happen? It's getting late. I'm not going to get this, this worked out before I get back. I'm not going to have this, this thing set up, which we need so desperately. Uh, <laughs> how could we possibly have church without a, a PowerPoint? And I was just in a dither. I'm running around trying to figure out what to do. And I thought, why am I like this? How is it, why is it so easy in different situations to act as though God isn't even involved in your life? That you're on your own. Why are we like that? Well, we have to remind ourselves. Continually, we have to remind ourselves. I need Christ. You need to ask yourself, if somebody was to say to you, do you really believe this stuff? Do you really believe that God sent Jesus into the world to die for our sins? Do you really believe this is the eternal Son of God and God sent him in the world to reconcile us to God? Do you actually believe that? What would you say? Yes, Yes, I believe that with all my heart. I believe that with all my heart. I have no doubt about that whatsoever. I know it's true. 
And if you believe that, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for your sins, he was raised from the dead, and when you received him, you were given his righteousness and he took your sin, that means you're a, you're a child of God. You're a believer. And sometimes I just need to ask myself, is this real in me so that I can share it with others? You know, verse 18 here isn't just use it or lose it, but the light will reveal the truth about us. The light of the gospel will reveal the truth about us. One of the proofs that we have eternal life is that we're always receiving more life and giving it away. That's John seven thirty seven. When you're believing Christ, when you're believing Christ, there is within you this river of life, which is the eternal life of God flowing out of you into other people's lives. And so you're manifesting the very life of God. You're manifesting his love for people, his concern for people. You're manifesting the truth. And that will raise questions, I can guarantee you. You are going to have those days when people will ask you that. Sometimes they'll say something like, I've had people say this. You actually believe this? Yes, I do. I actually believe this. I have no doubt about it. I know the gospel is the truth. And I know it's the truth that you're all ambassadors. Every believer in this room, you're an ambassador of Jesus Christ. You've been given, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. And you've been given that role. It's a glorious role. It's a great, great privilege that God has given you that role so that you can bear witness to the truth of the gospel that you believe. And there are going to be people who will listen to it, who will hear it, and will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you. Our Father, as we come before you, we are grateful that we can speak to you for others. I want to speak to you for us as a congregation, Father, that you would use us for your glory, that we would have our eyes opened to the truth that we've already received, that we would not put our light under a bushel, but we would put it on a lampstand. We would be ready we would be prepared to tell people the truth about Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. I pray, oh God, that you would use us as your witness. Help us to bear witness for Jesus Christ. We pray that you would save people and change them and bring them into the kingdom and make them ambassadors of Christ. Oh God, we pray for your, your rich, rich blessing upon your people. I pray for those in our congregation that are going through great challenges, sickness of various kinds, and I pray, Father, that you would let them see your glory in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of wondering what in the world is going to happen. I pray that you would fill their hearts with a confidence in you, the one who is in control of all of life. We trust you, and we give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.